The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I wanted to introduce a couple of interesting stories, I think, that illustrate the problems that we all face and the potential solutions. A couple of weeks ago, here in Wellington, where I'm based, a bunch of cycling activists built their own pop-up cycleway. It's been a controversial topic in Wellington, and the council's been very slow to get cycleways built. But the climate activists came along with their own planter boxes, their own poles, they screwed them into the road. Before you knew it, overnight, there was a pop-up cycleway on the road to Island Bay. This caused a real stink. A whole bunch of drivers were pretty outraged that their roads were taken over by cyclists. But also it showed those roads could be repurposed. And that's been one of the clear messages out of this Climate Change Commission, that we're not looking closely enough at repurposing our existing roads and motorways. The second example of how climate change and the climate change response could be dealt with outside of governments came a couple of weeks ago. A lot of New Zealanders don't know this story, but Chevron, one of the biggest companies in the world and, of course, one of the largest oil producers, had its annual meeting and a very small hedge fund called Engine Number no. 1 bought a 0.02% stake in this company and then rallied together a bunch of sovereign wealth funds and other pension funds, many of whom had climate change mandates to try and reduce emissions, got them together and managed to get two directors onto the board of Chevron with the aim, of course, of reducing emissions. We've seen similar resolutions passed at ExxonMobil, And just a couple of weeks ago, Shell has been forced by a court in the Netherlands to reduce its emissions. These are the examples of how maybe the Climate Change Commission and the government, maybe they're not the full solution to this. Actually, investors, fund managers, insurers, bankers, and our existing motorways and highways could be the solution to substantially reducing our climate emissions. Because one of the problems we have with the Climate Commission's report and the way the government has received it is that it's not being ambitious enough and it's also not being politically real enough. Because to do this properly, if the government was to do it alone, would involve significant pain for the median voter. All of those voters out in the suburbs who are taking their kids to the netball and the SUV, then on to the shops, then back to the school, then over to the to the sports activity and back home in the suburbs, those people are just not going to easily give up their tax revenues to help subsidise public transport, which they don't believe that they'd use. And they're also very unlikely to want to give up those extra roads and lanes, which they currently use on those motorways and highways. But there is a chance that New Zealand's companies, particularly the large ones, and in particular banks and insurers, effectively force the issue from the other side of the debate. Because overseas, many banking regulators, 
central banks, and also insurance companies are forcing change by effectively pricing the risk that companies will have to buy carbon credits in the future, that they'll be sitting on stranded assets. And you're starting to see this sort of action and reporting and pressure being applied by investors, financiers, and consumers to get companies to do the right thing. And then there's the option of, instead of spending tens of billions of dollars on massive new railways, as well as keeping the existing highways and motorways, remember this will take decades and we actually need to start reducing emissions now, to instead simply repurpose a lot of these lanes and half motorways for cyclists and pedestrians and buses. A much cheaper option. Those are the sorts of changes which we're talking about in this week's podcast. Firstly, Paul Winton, who is a asset manager, who has some particularly strong views about reconfiguring motorways and making them useful for cycling and walking and buses, much faster, much cheaper than trying to build railway networks. And secondly, we talked to Sarah Walton, an expert in climate change and business from Otago University, to talk about how insurers and banks are being pushed very fast by international regulators and investors to force businesses to change, to reduce their emissions, to report their emissions, to plan for the future, to reprice their assets so that when they're trying to get investment from pension funds, sovereign wealth funds and other investors, the real financial costs of continuing to pump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere or methane into the atmosphere is assessed. That's this week and When the Facts Change. Well, hello to uh, Paul Winton, who's uh, joining us on the interwebs from Brisbane, but has a particular interest in climate change and in transport policy. Uh, welcome into When the Facts Change on the spin-off. Paul from Brisbane, hello. Good afternoon, but thanks for having me here. I, I wanted to bring you into the conversation because you have a really quite different view about how we can deal with these issues. Tell me um, your, your view on, on what's the way to bring our emissions down. Well, I think you need to focus on what of the difficult things are the least hard to tackle. Um, so if you start at one end of it, one of the m most challenging, albeit somewhat doable things, is agricultural emissions. They can be pushed down, uh, but there are some real technical and political impediments to that. If you move through, and I won't list them out, you end up at the other end of the spectrum, which is the uh, least hard of hard things, and that's transport. And really we need to be taking a much bigger carrot and a much bigger stick in order to be able to deliver on emissions reductions that allow New Zealand to at least hold its head up with pride internationally. And unfortunately, as proposed today, um, we're going to struggle to do that. Uh, looking at the headlines of the Climate Commission's uh, report, what is it that they're missing from their uh, recommendations on transport? If I answer that for uh, the entire recommendation document, the, the one word would be ambition. The thing is, when you lack that ambition at a national level, then that cascades down to the ambition across all of the sectors. 
And what we're seeing here is that at a national level, the ambition is roughly half of what the IPCC said New Zealand needed to reduce its emissions by, by 2030, in order to just be a middling global player. Um, so to put specific numbers to that, they're saying for long-lived gases, net number 38% below 2019 by 2030, that 38% should be more like 75 to 80%. And um, their recommendations are, are quite vague, actually, when it comes to actual policies. They've, they've talked generally about um, stopping car imports and about improving cycling and pedestrianism and um, our public transport. But um, what do you think any government who's serious about not just hitting the 38% but, you know, a, a bigger number, what should they actually do quickly to um, get there? So the, the first thing they need to do is, is outline ambition, which is at the very least in keeping with what the global average is, and send a signal to everybody uh, to other parties, to uh, businesses, that things need to change meaningfully over the next decade. If you don't do that, then incrementalism can sneak in and you don't think about the sort of the sudden or structural shifts that are actually needed to get to the sort of reductions that the country needs. If you then jump to that um, least half of a bunch of hard things, transport, the core element there is really opening up our streets, our streets which... Um, we have invested in over many, many decades in infrastructure, now need to be repurposed uh, in a way that allows safe, healthy, equitable and decarbonised transportation. And so this is actually that solution uh, that will get us there um, is not so much about money. In fact, we probably need less money than is currently proposed within the transport budget, but we do need to have a bunch of hard conversations around how we use public space as has recently been seen in Wellington with the pop-up lane and in Auckland with the uh, bridge raid. So tell us about those hard conversations. What do you think they should look like? Well, for a start, we need central government. We really need the Prime Minister and the Minister for Transport, Michael Wood, to say, look, we think that there's a better way that we can get around our cities and get things around our cities and, and around our rural environments. And that way involves opening up our streets to a broader range of users so that we can provide safe active transport, so that we can provide public transport, which is not terrible, which most people would say current public transport is, mainly by way of buses because that scales extremely fast. And in order to do that, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to think about how we use the space we've got at the moment. So in practice that means where in many cases where we have given free license for private motor vehicles to park where they want, when they want, at relatively no or low or, or zero cost, and maybe it's time to have a conversation about pulling that back. And what we're seeing, and this has been uh, evidenced in other places, most notably Paris, where the, with a clear mandate to make the city more livable, uh, Hidalgo, Mayor Hidalgo, said that, that she's going to pull out 160,000 parks within the Paris city centre. And what that does is it, it opens up a massive amount of real estate for outdoor dining, for kids to play on, uh, to kick a ball around, to ride a bike, or to move the bus up and down if you want to. But it is an awkward conversation. It's cheaper, but it's an, it can be an awkward conversation. So what do you say to the um, talkback hosts or the um, politicians who might live on a lifestyle block or in a nice big section in the suburbs who 
have a job in the centre of town and tell you that they don't want to arrive at work after uh, cycling in the rain. Or maybe they've got some babies or kids that they don't think they can put on the back of the bike. What do you say to them? So there's a, I think there's a couple of bits to that. I mean, we're not talking about moving back to Auckland of 1850 where there was four horses and a bike. And this is you know, something where if we manage to move a reasonable volume of people out of their cars and the average car during a commute time has got 1.1 people in it, move them out of their cars and into other modes of transport, including walking and or not going, then it actually makes it better, not only for those who choose to use those alternative modes as we open up our streets to support them, but also for those that really genuinely do need to make more complex trips, whether you're dropping the kids off and you've got some shopping, you've got to go to school, you've got to go and see a client. Now, these things, that cars will be an important part of our journey, but maybe not quite as prevalent in the full mix of ways that we get us and things around. I wrote a piece uh, a while ago which talked about um, how the climate change strategy um, would find it difficult to beat our double cab ute suburban living culture. Because when you talk about moving towards cycling and um, walking, you're really talking about perhaps living in a different way or even in a different place. Um, surely that is too big a cultural change for, for, for a lot of people. I think for some people that is a big change and it's a difficult change to imagine. Many of these things are experiential and it's not until you've done them that you go, wow, that was actually a lot of fun. And in fact, on the cycling front, one of the things I hear most, and there's some great commentary over the last couple of years about people who were vehemently opposed to ever being on a bike and had all the insults to people that wear Lycra they could think of, actually tried it and it was both fun and a really good way for them to get around and healthy and these other benefits that we know about. One of the challenges that we have in New Zealand is for a long time we have been a relatively low density country where, you know, bar CBD Auckland or maybe Wellington, getting around in a car is fabulous. And something like a Hilux or a Ranger is the Swiss Army knife of vehicles. You know, you can take yourself, you can take all your mates, you can take all your gear, and that's fine. But as our cities get denser and denser, they become less and less appropriate as, and less and less the best tool for getting around. So for many of us that are in those higher density places, uh, it, it simply won't be the best tool. And, and what we need to do now is both, and it will be both carrot and stick, um, make it more compelling for people to do that by providing safe passage for active modes and public transport that's not terrible, but also bring in some sticks and some of the sticks might be, um, and there's lots of tools around this internationally, we might tax vehicles when they come in. The Europeans are talking about 30,000 euros per vehicle for something that looks like a Hilux today. Uh, we might do differential depreciation. We might do differential fringe benefit tax. Like There's a lot of tools that we can use that will gently guide people away from, uh, from those double cab utes. So how do you manage the transition uh, in a way that's fair but also um, takes into account, you know, those big, poorer families, um, there may be two or three families to a house, they may have three or four cars, they need those cars to get to work and take people, kids to school and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they drive on the roads and then suddenly someone's sent a, an order saying that they can't drive on that left-hand lane because it's now a cycling lane. How do you manage that? 
So there's a, a couple of issues under there. I think one is that the, the emergent evidence from offshore around that cycling lane you mentioned is it actually causes traffic to evaporate in a lot of cases. So a lot of people actually do move to the cycle lane and it means those that do need to drive around actually find it easier. So there's, again, that's a, that's a false dichotomy that's been playing out, which is, you know, if you give a cycle lane, then it'll be terrible. Actually, it's better for those people that are in cars. If you then jump to your first issue around equity, it looks absolutely crucial that our trans and transition here be equitable. Um, and I think one of the things that's missing from the debate is that those who um, are um, struggling more are at the moment in transport poverty, both time poverty and dollar poverty. And they're in that poverty because they're forced to buy a dodgy old Pajero from 1992 that cost them $3,000 to buy probably $4,000 a year to fix, including the oil they've got to put in every year. And then the same amount in petrol. Um, so, and, and on top of that, because we have this housing crisis that's been so poorly managed over the last decade or two that you've spoken so much about, they're also obliged to work a long way away from where they live in many cases. So that puts them also in time poverty. So those people today, are in a terrible position, both in time and money. By opening up our streets and providing safe access for them to get around in an electric bike, which may well have some sort of incentive. A $1,000 low interest loan for an e-bike would go a lot further than some of the tools we're talking about for accelerating uptake of EV, for example. And rolling out, because we've reallocated and opened up our streets to public transport, we can put out public transport that isn't terrible. And that means that for less money and less time, you'll actually be able to get where you need to go. And by the way, it's decarbonised. You mentioned that, you know, a lot of money is being spent on transport, on roads and on, on rail. And you also said maybe we could manage that transition without spending all this money on concrete and steel. Could you mm. tell us um, how that's possible? Because... A lot of people assume, you know, if we're going to do public transport in a big way and manage to avoid massive congestion, the only way is to spend, you know, $30 billion on a couple of light rail and a whole bunch of electric buses, which, you know, they'll cost tens of billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. I think this is, again, um, a common misconception, including amongst those in the transport space. And there's there's two flavours of public transport. There's kind of fixed infrastructure, rail, light rail, and then there's buses. They're the main flavours. And if you look at the, the first of those, the light rail and rail, they're really capital heavy. Like they're a great way to build the city of the future and the city of the way that we want in the long, in the long term. But in practice, they actually don't move that many people around compared to how many people are moving around today. So to put numbers to that in Auckland, the CRL will see costing us another $5 billion. That will reduce Auckland's emissions by about 1%. And the light rail projects, the two light rail projects, um, ill-defined though they might be, might cost 10 to $15 billion. I mean, pick a project definition. Uh, and they'll reduce our emissions about 2%. So it is not the case that just throwing more money, let alone the constraint in actually building this stuff in a decade, remembering this is all about the next decade, will get us to where we need. I mean, what I've just described to you, those two projects almost account for one year's worth of population growth in Auckland. The other side of the coin, however, does scale better, and that's the buses. And the buses are easier to bring on one by one, and they also are easier to provide rapid access to by repurposing and opening our streets. 
So the political economy of this is quite difficult, particularly when you've got a conservative um, electorate, there may be an ageing electorate. How do, you, how do you, you know, address that political economy problem? A large part of this is because many, if not most of us, have not experienced this. And what we know, and we can lean on experience from overseas, we actually find that people, uh, turns out, can actually go to work and the shops afterwards and pick up a kid or two in a bike or in a bus. And sometimes they only need to do that maybe a day or two a week, and the rest of the time maybe they can still take their car. Because we're not talking about stripping all cars off all people all the time. What we're saying is, in a lot of cases, there's just a better tool for getting around. What I think that bridge announcement also does is it highlights one of the really crunchy issues that's coming up against us, which is if you speak to progressive transport designers and, and transport planners, they will tell you that we could reallocate a lane on the bridge relatively easily and at relatively low cost in a manner that opens it up to active transport but actually doesn't have a meaningful impact on the transit time of people who are in coast cars going through there. But uh, two things. One is our transport agencies, Wakako, Tahi and MOT, come from DNA that mainly involves more tarmac. And what we're talking about now is a fundamentally different skill set. It's about reallocation of the existing skill set and the difficult conversations that that requires. So the people who have actually got us there here have done a great job and are probably not the people for the next stage of the journey. And what that means is because the politicians and the Labour government in particular is so nervous about the political backlash from handing over, for example, a lane, it is, in their opinion, easier to spend nigh on a billion dollars on a bolt-on um, to the existing bridge, which placates the cyclists and those that believe in that thing, whilst not actually having to in any way bear the brunt of a conversation with those that still drive across the bridge. And in that case, uh, now during peak time, we know that you know, circa half of the people coming across the bridge do on a bus. So it, it, it is the case that it's a very, um, it's a very vocal minority, um, but the politicians are being, and the bridge is a great example, forced into doing things that economically may not make as much sense as paths that require um, really nuanced conversations. So you're actually in the business of allocating capital and making you know, assessments of the long-term costs and benefits of a particular asset. Could you uh, put yourself in the shoes of someone at Treasury or even the Finance Minister and uh, try to show them that in, in pure investment terms, spending $50 billion on railways and new motorways and um, that sort of thing, actually can't be financially justified. Yeah, sure. So you've got this existing infrastructure that requires, you know, if you believe that you can open our streets um, to active and public modes of transport, not that much additional money. There are some of those projects you mentioned, like the light rail, like the CRL, which as part of a long-term game actually make sense to build the cities we want. But we shouldn't confuse them with being decarbonisation projects. They're about building the core backbone of our cities. And I think if you look at the economics, if we, if we do a simple trade-off here and we use the Harbour Bridge in Auckland as an example, and we're talking about $800 million to build a new bridge uh, that will take, call it five years if you believe that plan 
The alternative would be measured in probably tens of millions of dollars at best in, in peeling off one lane and a lot of hard conversations. So what we're effectively saying is, on those rough numbers, it's worth $700 million a year to not have to have that conversation. Someone, probably someone in Treasury, is, as we speak, tearing their hair out at this very thing. And that's going to be raised, and it's going to be raised again and again and again. We, we cannot spend our way out of this. And what, we, what Treasury should be doing is saying, hey, you actually need to, to actually hire a whole lot of behavioural psychologists and comms people. And all those people that you used to have in Wakakotahi and the MOT who you know, eat and breathe tarmac have done a great job getting us to where we are. Now we need a very different skill set. And I think within three to five years, the capability set within those organisations need to be more about public engagement, comms, change management than they, than they are about painting lines or, or rolling out more tarmac. If we don't do that then we're going to be trying to spend out of our way out of something that you just cannot spend. You cannot spend enough money to solve this thing. Why do you think we don't have these tough conversations? I think there's two layers to that. I think the politicians are understandably concerned that they're going to be turfed out. I mean, these are emotive topics. In some cases, you know, they may know the right answer, but they could blow up in all sorts of ways. And if you think back to an example that springs to mind is the, um, the shower head issue of Helen Clark's shower head issue. Now, no one expected that that would become a defining thing that would still be being talked about 15 years later. Um, but so there is, there is understandable political risk. That said, there are also ways to manage that. And if we look overseas, we know that other politicians have stumbled into this quagmire and in some cases actually figured their way out. So I think our politicians are not well informed about how they can best manage that more, that somewhat challenging political discussion. And one of the key issues associated with that is our politicians are being poorly informed by uh, the agencies. So they've been poorly informed by Wakakotahi and they've been extremely poorly informed by MOT, who simply didn't front foot this topic. And in fact, if we go back to the beginning of this conversation uh, and talk about ambition, in many ways, um, the Climate Change Commission, who did a fabulous job of engaging with the community, and I really take my hat off to the way they spoke to all and sundry and really listened, listened a lot to agencies and, in fact, engaged internally agencies that just hadn't done the work. Um, and therefore, there isn't the recognition or the understanding of the ways that other countries, like London, have crossed this divide. They've stubbed their toes and they've figured out how they actually get streets opened up, low-traffic neighbourhoods in a way that people actually want these things. It's hard. I get that it's hard, but the, I think the central government, the politicians and the agencies are woefully ill-prepared for this. So, Paul, um, we now have the government uh, spend some time thinking about this recommendation, and by the end of the year they have to come back with a response. I'm going to make you Prime Minister for the day. <laughs> mm. uh, what, would you, what would you do um, in response? What would you jump up in Parliament and say after you've said this is an emergency and I'm going to do something? Well, I think the first thing you want to do is to really understand and then probably lean on the best science of the day. And the best science of the day is the um, IPCC's 2018 work, and it's pretty clear about the rough pathway that a country needs to take. Unfortunately, the Climate Change Commission have largely ignored the purpose 
of the Zero Carbon Act, and the purpose is to contribute to 1.5. So they've linked almost entirely on Net Zero 2050. And so what would I do were I the Prime Minister? I'd get a more robust view of uh, the science than has been delivered to me, by, unfortunately, by the agency that I actually mandated to do that. So first thing is understand the science. Secondly, really get out front-footed and communicate this as a massive opportunity for the country to actually become a better place in a decade. And I don't know anybody that loves sitting next to a diesel bus having fumes fly across them while they're having a coffee. You know, the, the world that I've described to you is one where it's easier to get around, it's more equitable, it's safer, it's cheaper. And so the, what we're not seeing is the PM front-footing this. She's not well-informed in science. She's not front-footing the conversation at the scale that that science demands. Um, so I, I would do that and then I would be diving into um, mandating or asking my agencies to come and tell me what needs to be true in order to deliver on that. And um, we haven't yet seen that. I think Michael Wood has uh, made a heroic effort to turn around the MOT, having been in there for six months. But even so, you know, you can see from his draft paper, uh, transport paper of two or three weeks ago, that you can see he had to push them across the line on one of those scenarios, and they were probably kicking and screaming at that. Change is hard, isn't it? Change is hard. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Let's hope the facts change. <laughs> Amen. Let's hope the facts change, Bernard. Thank you so much for your time. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Sarah Walton, who is an Associate Professor at Otago University's Business School and the Co-Director of the University's Climate Change Project. Kia ora. Sarah, could you tell us what should businesses look out for in this Climate Commission recommendations, these final recommendations? Okay, so this climate change advice to government is 
going to change the landscape, our policy landscape, quite considerably. So I, I gave a presentation actually to the Institute of Directors recently and there was a hands up of who actually talks about climate change in their board meetings and you can imagine there weren't many hands going up. So there's quite a lot for our businesses to start talking about. It's about understanding climate change to start with, basic climate change 101 in our boardrooms and our um, leadership meetings of our organisations, understanding particularly the impacts of climate change on the business but then uh, how the business can mitigate and get ready for a low-carbon economy. And many of the avenues for that are outlined in this advice um, to government. Now, should directors and managers, investors, be looking at things such as their firm's emissions, maybe planning to change their fleets and boilers, revaluing their stranded assets, working out their carbon costs and their disclosures to, to everyone? Yeah, all of the above. So as well as thinking about the particular impacts that climate change may well have on their business, they have to start thinking, like you say, more widely about some of the impacts we see from the policy changes. Um, and then, yeah, all of those different aspects um, around around that as well, like you've outlined insurances, um, how you do business, um, your supply chains, your global supply chains, and then thinking about how you um, as an organisation are going to carry out that business, um, decreasing your carbon emissions, how you're going to measure and manage and decrease those, and like you say, how you're going to innovate as an organisation in order to mitigate, um, and then what you're going to do with those emissions that you're not going to be able to decrease. But do business leaders really need to do anything now? Surely just leave it up to the government, let them do their hooey while um, we get on with business. <laughs> I think um, we've perhaps been doing that for quite some time and um, and that's why right now it's pretty much crunch time. So, you know, if we really want to be able to have a world to inhabit with a quality of life, then we really can't ignore it any longer and I think that's what, you know, this is this report saying we need to do this now. We only have, you know, so long before we're going to go to a position in this world that will be quite uninhabitable or quite difficult for us to inhabit. But will the drivers mm. for business actually come more from insurers and bankers and financial regulators and customers and investors rather than the government through taxes or regulations, you know, banning cars, building cycleways? Isn't it the investors telling the businesses what to do or, you know, refusal of insurance and banking, isn't that going to be the real driver for change? Insurers have always been thought of as the canary in the mines. So once they start um, not insuring or pushing up insurance um, levies that are going to be particularly high, then that starts to make companies think about what it is that they're doing and whether that's going to be tenable viable, economically viable for the organisation. So yes, there will be that mixed in, as you've said, with banking as well. Businesses often look to other businesses as well. And I think there's a lot of that too. So I think as we start to see movers, which we're starting to see now, and I mean, I was doing a review of our master's program recently and I was looking up the amount of jobs there are in sustainability and climate change. And it's you know, it's increasing. So organisations are realising actually we need to bring in expertise in this area we, and, you know, jobs are being created in organisations. So then we start to, to see the whole sort of movement. So someone coming in to be a carbon net zero um, coordinator in the business and, and 
and then one business sees another business do that and then so on it goes. So it just becomes a strategic necessity to have that going in your organisation. But we were really going to see that competitive advantage will be around the innovations and so these businesses starting to really innovate in order to mitigate carbon or do things differently within their organisation. Now, there is a theory in business that it pays not to be at the bleeding edge of some sort of new business development. Sometimes it's better to be the fast follower, someone who waits to see which the directions the directions headed and then jump in there, particularly once the price of the technology or the change drops. How do you think about this in terms of strategy terms? Are you better off being, you know, uh, the the first first in, or do you just wait to see um, someone else get their nose bloodied and then? run around them as, as they fall over. Well, it's been interesting to watch, actually, because I've been in this field now researching in, in Aotearoa for quite some time. So I've kind of watched businesses say things and do things over the last sort of 20 years. And yes, there's definitely been those companies that have come out and really pushed, and there's definitely been those fast followers. Um, and now I think, you know, they're pushing even further to really start developing further. And those groups get together the pure advantages of the world and the um, the Climate Change Coalition leadership group as well. So there's those groups that come out and really really start to push and um, and bring about that change. And then there's the followers. But in New Zealand, we have a lot of SMEs, and that's where I think um, some of the aspects around climate change hit quite hard um, because many of those run on the smell of an oily rag already. And then we bring in more... Um, you know, levels of policy and compliance that they find quite scary. It's harder for those kind of organisations to employ a sustainability person to come in and do it for them. But in some ways, on the other side, those organisations are more adaptable. So I think we need to remind our SMEs that they can adapt um, and that they can shift their thinking, um, And but they're probably going to have to in order to keep going in this world. Do accountants need to change the way that they do business or think about the scorecards uh, for businesses around um, profit and loss and assets and liabilities? Because in theory, you may now have to think about the potential costs for a particular sunk asset or stranded asset um, in the long run when you start to think about, say, in 30 years' time, that um, that boiler or that double cab you, you've still got <laughs> may require you to buy carbon credits or it may mean that it's unsaleable. Yeah, definitely. And there's been a strong movement in accountancy, um, particularly in the academic discipline, but also in practice as well around social and environmental accounting or integrated accounting with sustainability and actually starting to um, look at value and um, the creation and I guess and how value is captured in an accounting sense and accountability as well. So there's been a lot of questions asked from accountants, practising accountants and in the disciplinary field. But I also see the carbon area, the whole carbon measurement, management and how um, that is accounted for as a burgeoning area where we will start to see, I think, some professionalisation around that too and some standards coming in so that it will be another sort of profession, I think, around that as we get on, as with the sustainability field as well. Can you see executives, boards being incentivised on these sort of new measures, KPIs, like hitting carbon zero targets and um, reducing emissions or becoming, um, a, you know, a fossil-free company? I hope so. <laughs> um, I think um, for, for the sake of our planet, we need to. Um, but yes, I, I think 
I, I think it's going to become far more normalised. I think as the, um, this advice goes to government and we see the policies rolled out from MB over the next few years, then um, we'll start to see these discussions and these policies and ways of doing things become just part of what we do. And I think that board conversation will have to change. Sarah Walton, the Associate Professor at the Otago University's Business School and the Co-Director of Otago University's Climate Change Network. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed um, talking to you here on When the Facts Change. Kia ora. Well, that was Sarah Walton from Otago University. And before that, we had Paul Winton. There'll be much more to come. This story will not go away. It'll be with us for decades and we'll keep revisiting it. Don't forget to subscribe and then you'll get our juicy podcast every week, which has been brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. I'm Bernard Hickey and that was When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.